Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got a coos deer killer himself, McGill Morales, on the phone. McGill, how you doing? Oh, doing pretty good. Um, I follow you on Instagram, and I know that you have great success uh, hunting these coos deer, among other things. Um, why don't you tell me and the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I've been, I've been, uh, I live in Ogallis, Arizona, and I've been down here basically all of my life, except for the time that I was in the military. I was in the Marine Corps for about five years, and then. Um, uh, came back and uh, just currently doing a lot of, you know, a lot of chasing of the whitetails lately. Um, I've been bow hunting since probably 99, and it's just been a, a quest to kind of perfect the, you know, the strategy. Um, really, that's, that's, I don't really do much else. I don't, I don't do a lot of golf. I don't do, you know, any other, I just mainly hunt, and I usually hunt for big game. That's, pretty much all I do. So. That's your passion. So you live in Nogales, Arizona, and for those listeners out there that are not uh, familiar with Arizona, explain to them geographically and a little bit about Nogales, Arizona, and um, where it is in relation to the Mexican border and what have you. We are exactly right on the border. I mean, we are about 60 miles south of Tucson, and it's uh, one of the bigger ports of entry. And uh, mainly this is like a produce-type town that, uh, you know, they, uh, they use this as, as a gateway for, for a lot of the produce that comes up from Mexico. And uh, that's, that's a, a large portion of the, uh, of the business here. So we're right on the border. You know, as a matter of fact, a lot of times when I'm glassing, I can see the border from where I'm at. And uh, it's... Uh, it's it's a pretty decent area, you know. I mean, obviously, people, you know, if you're not from a small town, it's, it, but, you know, it's, that's what it basically is. It's a small town. So, so Miguel, you know, um, obviously, obviously, there's been lots of shows and lots of stuff in the news with um, illegal immigration and lots of uh, drug trafficking and stuff going through, you know, obviously through that area for, for, for many, many years. Um, as, as someone, did you grow up in Nogales? Yes. Yes. So someone that's grown up and, you know, lived in Nogales their whole life, um, from, from your perspective as a local, uh, would you, you know, I, well, let me back up. I would say my perception is uh, from someone that lives, you know, three, two and a half hours away in Phoenix, that, uh, yes, there is stuff that goes on every day through Nogales and what have you, but from your perspective as a local living there, um, there's lots of people that live everyday normal lives uh, right there in Nogales. Can you talk a little bit about some of the public perception of, of what's going on uh, and then some of, you know, the real-life perception of what's going on down there as far as just normal life? Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of politics involved as far as, you know, about, you know, the border wall, about, you know, things of that nature, you know, people that are for it, against it, and everything else. But, you know, as the average person, you know, I mean, it's it's not, you know, a lot of it is, a lot of the, the uh, you know, the illegal activity, you know, has gone down from, you know, 
from when I was younger. And um, it just seems like it's <laughs> things are a lot more calculated and stuff like that. They're not really going to be, you know, as blatant about it as they once were. So, I mean, like, uh, usually when I go out hunting, it's not too often that you see, you know, a lot of activity, whereas before, you could see a lot more. Yeah, it but, seems uh, like... Life is just like everything else. Uh-huh. seemed like 10 or 15 years ago, um, I mean, it, any of those units you hunted right there on the border, I mean, you would literally see hundreds of, of, of people coming and, uh, you know, carrying all sorts of things, and it just seems like, um, you know, in my opinion, it kind of took a long time for the mainstream media to kind of pick up on that, and and then it's almost like they've gone overboard. And I don't want to mitigate, I don't want to like minimize some of the issues that they've got going on there. But um, from a hunting standpoint, it sure seems like uh, you hear a lot less reports of any confrontations or or people actually seeing, you know, traffic, you know coming across the border, it's way less than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes, definitely. How much, how much of that is due to the huge presence of Border Patrol uh, all along the border there in Arizona? Um, you know, I, I think it, it, the large presence of Border Patrol does help that situation, you know, and like I said, I mean, it's very, um, they are, the South Side kind of understands that the more yeah. people see them, they're going to get called in, you know, so they don't try and, and, uh, make their presence known. So they, they, it's, it's been a, a big change from 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Let's, let's dive into, um, talking about your, your passion, which is coos deer, um, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, your perception growing up in Nogales, the coos deer hunting when you were, say, a kid uh, compared to, you know, the last five, six, seven, eight years, um, you know, from a deer number standpoint, do you think there's any difference in deer numbers and deer quality as far as finding good bucks? Do you think it's better or worse? Um, talk a little bit about those two aspects of hunting right there on the Arizona border. Um, well, <laughs> excuse me, um, during that time frame, you know, during the time that I've been hunting, I remember when I first started hunting back about 15 years ago, you know, with a bow during that January time frame, we'd see, a, you know, a lot of big bucks, both mule deer and whitetail. And, uh, but it just, you know, back then, Barely had, you know, there was barely such a thing as a rangefinder back then, so it was it was very challenging to try and get close to them, and you know, there's a steep learning curve. But now, now there's, um, I think it's 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 easier to find the big bucks because of the you know the optics that we have and things of that things of that nature that really you know help out being able to to pick them out. Um, if I think there's always, I think there's always like there's always going to be a change in in in, uh, in habitat uh, that they prefer. They, they kind of move around a little bit. Sometimes where I used to see white tails before, now I see mule deer, and vice versa. 
and you know some of them have gone full circle where he's back to whitetail again. So it's it, it just kind of I think that you're always going to find good bucks. I don't think that you know the the heyday is gone, but uh, I think it also has to do a lot with with the rain. It has to do a lot with um, you know actually how much growth you know as far as everything else is concerned. I mean. If you hunt the, the, the general hunts, I think you're hard-pressed to find a deer, and that was the case back when I first started hunting, you know, during the general seasons. But during Miguel, the, uh, would you... Go ahead. Hmm? Would you I say most you of know, your... Uh-huh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Would you say most of your hunting is archery hunting now? Um, and if, if you say, yes, most of my, most of my hunting is archery hunting... Uh, how much of your time is spent, you know, in the uh, velvet season, you know, in, in the August, September time frame, and how much is, you know, in the December, January time frame, or is it that you buy a tag for that year and you hunt until you kill, you know, you kill your buck? I hunt until I kill my buck, and I've been pretty fortunate, you know, for the last, you know, seven years, I've, I've only gotten one time to go into the velvet season. And, um, but every other year has been pretty much in January. So in other words, for those listeners um, out there that don't know, for for some of the listeners from out of state, uh, Arizona allows you to buy an archery tag starting January 1st. Well, you can actually buy the 2019 license ahead of time, but starting January 1st, you can kill one uh, antler deer uh, per calendar year. So what Miguel's talking about is the ability to buy that tag and hunt starting January 1st, which um, in most cases throughout uh, Arizona, the, the coos deer and the mule deer, um, you know, kind of are, are definitely in the pre-rut stage, definitely in the rut stage. And then as January goes on, um, you know, the rut progresses for both mule deer and coos deer. And then if you hunt the whole month of January from the 1st to the 31st and you don't harvest, that tag is still good um, when the season rolls around in August. So what Miguel's saying is the last seven years he's been able to kill his buck except for one year in January before it rolled over to the August season. One question I would have for you, Miguel, is, with your success, let's talk a little bit about your success of, of you know, se- seven years. I believe you've killed seven bucks over 100 inches. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So so a 100-inch coos deer is a heck of a deer. With your biggest coos deer with a bow is how big? 116. Okay, so well, seven of them will... Seven of them over a hundred, with the biggest being one sixteen gross. Um, and then Miguel, I hear you saying that you know you you've done that in January. So what I hear you saying is you focused a lot of time hunting these deer in the rut. Um, talk a little bit about how much pre scouting are you doing in August and you know October, November, December up until the January hunt, and do you have like bucks picked out? Or do you kind of just hit the ground running January 1st and just enjoy hunting the whole month and kind of really get started around January 1st? I'm curious how much prep time there is. Um, 
one thing that I've noticed, because I, I do scout because I have, like, family members and other people that, that, you know, I'll go out with during those general hunts. But usually they kind of move around during the, during the January time frame. So it's kind of like when you hunt elk. If you do a lot of your scouting before they actually start rutting, as soon as that rut comes in, it kind of blows things out of, you know, all that information kind of out a little bit. And mostly during, you know, just like with any rut hunt, you really want to hunt the does. You find where the, all the, the, the does are, and you kind of make your rounds looking at them and see what's come in, you know, checking them out. Now, as far as, like, you know, they are kind of homebodies when, they, when it's not the rut, but I, I've seen that when they rut, they'll, they'll move more than, than a couple miles sometimes looking for does. So, you know, during the August hunt, yeah, you know, you kind of want to do your pre-scouting, you know, June, July, you know, see out, go out there, see what you're going to see, kind of see where they're at. Obviously, you know, the horns are small, but you kind of have an idea when you're going to, when you're looking at something good and then just kind of, you know, just kind of keep moving. Uh, and that's, that's really all it is. I mean, it's just being out there. Okay, I want to I want to pick into a few of those things you said and get a little more information. So, from sure. what I hear you saying, uh, you know, you're saying that the bucks in January are kind of moved into you know rut zones and rutting areas where does are, and the same bucks that you know on the October and De- November and December hunts that you're out with friends or family or what have you, um, you're saying that you have different pockets. Uh, that you hunt during the rut with the bow, and what I hear you saying is you keep moving. So, so do I hear you correctly in that you have areas that you like to go check those does, and if you don't see a buck that you want to chase, do you then move, check another area of does, and just keep kind of bouncing around until you find a buck to hunt? Is that your strategy? Yes. Yes, basically and, that's what I do. Okay, and so... Um, and just to be clear, like the areas that you hunt in October, November, and December, when you're doing that, are you specifically keeping track of areas that you see large amounts of does um, and then maybe areas where all you see is bucks? And to, to take that a step further, would you then, you know, in the back of your mind, you know, with, with people listening, they can they can kind of see how you're trying to think it out, and that's you've got doe areas and you've got buck areas. During the rut, you do not want to go to the buck areas. You actually want to go to the doe areas. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. And, Miguel, have you been able to – well, I'll get into that in a second. Let me ask you a couple questions. Obviously, you live in Nogales. Um, What are some of the units – you know, I'm not not looking for your spots or your honey holes or anything, but – what are the units for the listeners that aren't familiar with that area, you know, the 36s, the 34s, like what are the areas that are kind of around you? Um, you'll have, like, I'll go, you know, I'll hunt 35, 35A, 35B, 34A, you know, um, 36A, B, and C. I mean, I mean I've gone as you know, far up as 33, it's just, um, it's just covering a lot of ground. So, I mean, it's, 
it's a large area that I usually cover. And once I start seeing what I want to see as far as animals are concerned, that's when I kind of start honing in and spending more of my time in that area. Okay, so, so with, with 35A, 35B, 36A, B, and C, there's five units right there. And then you throw in 34A, the Santa Rita's. And so, I mean, you basically got six units right there that are all, you know, relative, say, an hour drive from, from Nogales, from your house within striking distance. So would it be safe to say that um, there's days that you'll be in 35A and the very next day you could be in 34A or you could be over in 36B? I mean, so in other words, when you talk about jumping around, you are not just talking about jumping around within the unit. And for the listeners out there that, that aren't familiar, in Arizona, that tag, that tag that you buy January 1st is good for most all units in the state of Arizona. Obviously, you got to check the regulations. But one of the beauties about Arizona is that that tag that can be purchased over the counter by resident or non-resident can be used in most every unit across the state. So, Miguel, am I correct in thinking that when you say keep moving, you could be bouncing from one unit to a complete different unit and back to another unit all within a matter of a few days? Yes. Yeah. Are, there times, are there times when you're glassing in the morning in one unit and, the very ne and that very evening you could be glassing in a completely different unit? Or is it pretty I much have. spent one? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of depends what you're seeing. If you're seeing something that, that's kind of interesting, then you might want to spend some more time there. If not, hey, it's, you know, if you're not, you know, sometimes you just got to give it, you know, a few more days or whatever because it seems like, you know, the deer rut at different elevations. So in order to get the most out of the rut, you kind of have to cover different elevations in order to, in order to be able to get the most out of it. At least that's what I've let's, let's talk about that a little bit. You talk about rutting at different elevations. That's one thing I really like about coos deer is, you know, they, they, they inhabit all the way from the desert floor all the way up, you know, into the ponderosa pine trees at, you know, seven, 8,000 feet. Um, talk a little bit about when you say see something interesting or you say, um, you know, they rut at different elevations. Uh, going into a season, is there a certain elevation that you would think that they would be running sooner than later? And then um, also, is there a certain elevation that later in the season you find them running more in that, you know, elevation as opposed to early on? Usually for me, you know, the higher you are, the earlier they rut, and then the lower you get, the later they rut. I mean, it's maybe a two-week span instead of a week span that you're going to be in the rut, that you're extending it, you know. But uh, it's for me, it's always been that way that, you know, the lower the elevation, the later they rut. A little bit higher, they rut a little bit earlier. So, so for some reason, from that's, a that's what I've seen. From a strategic standpoint, you may be hunting that, and let's talk about when you talk about, you know, kind of higher elevation, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're probably talking about that, you know, 4,500 to 7,000 foot range is kind of higher. And then when you talk about kind of lower elevation, I would assume you're talking, you know, say 4,500 down to 2,500 where you're getting more into the Ocotillo 
more into the mesquite, right. you know, more into the desert floor. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so you will find deer year after year, more deer kind of rutting in that um, yellow grass, uh, you know, kind of sprawling oak uh, type country, maybe even up into some pines and stuff. Um, but that rolling oak country, you're going to, the first week of the season, you may work that part of the country over, and then as things progress throughout the season, you may transition to hunting more down in the desert? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I mean, uh, it, it kind of depends on the, on, the on the information that you have at hand, but if I'm kind of like starting from zero, that's where I would be. You know, because, I mean, there's some years that you have bucks, that you're keeping track of and you know that they're going to be in a certain area. Sometimes you're just kind of like all out of bucks and you kind of have to start looking from scratch. So, but if I was to have zero info, that's, that's what I would do. That's what I, that's where I would start. Okay. And let's say you had zero info and let's say some of your holdover bucks from the year before, let's say you're kind of starting the year with kind of by scratch or maybe even just wanting to look at new country. Um, Walk us through kind of what what does a day consist of as far as what are you looking for? What you know what are you looking for as type of terrain? You know, glassing availability, uh, numbers of deer. Like kind of kind of walk into walk us into kind of what you're looking for if you're say prospecting and and trying to you know hit some new country and and find something interesting. Well. One of the things that I've kind of noticed is that some of the really big bucks, some of the really big coos deer are kind of found in mule deer country or what you would think is mule deer country. So sometimes I kind of go that route. I, sometimes I kind of look at areas that, you know, you just like, nah, there's, you know, this is a whitetail country because some of the biggest bucks that I've seen have been like either really, really low or really, really high. And I, there was one year, quite a quite a ways. It was a long time ago, probably about ten, twelve years back, where a friend of mine and I, we had seen ten bucks, and this was during the August hunt that we figured would be one ten or better. And there was the biggest one we thought was in the one forty class, and he killed one that was in the middle, and he ended up scoring about one twenty six. And this was all in areas that, you know, you normally wouldn't think would be whitetail country. You know, it's kind of lower. And so, I mean, it's, but for me, whenever I start glassing somewhere, I, I have, you know, a set of big eyes uh, with a 25 to 50 zoom. And I find the highest point I can find so I can get the most amount of country. And I just kind of start looking and start glassing. And I'll spend, you know, three, four hours and see what I see. Once I kind of start seeing animals, I'll kind of try and figure out where I can glass in a little bit closer. And I mean, when I say I start glassing, it'll be, it could be up to three miles, four miles away. I start seeing animals in a certain area, and then I just kind of figure out how I can get close and get a good vantage point in order to be able to see in that area. And that's really, you know, a lot of what I do. I mean, there's times that I've gone down to Mexico and, you know, it was, uh, I went down with a friend of mine and the cowboy was saying, yeah, you know, we're going to take you over here. I said, you know what, man, just 
let's go up to the highest point of the ranch. He's like, well, you know, I'm like, just, let's just do that in the morning. He's like, well, okay. We ended up getting up top and we glassed up a deer and ended up being over 120 and he was about two miles away and we ended up killing him that morning. But that was just because we were up at the highest point and able to glass a great deal of terrain. And I think, you know, it's, it's the quantity of terrain that in order to get to the quality. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, a couple questions for what you just talked about there. First, you talk about big eyes, a 25 by 50 uh, with the zoom. What are you actually using? Which binoculars? The Swarovski, it's two Swarovski spotting scopes on the plate. Okay, that's what I use as well. So I have the 25 to 50 eyepieces as well with the 65 millimeter um, objective lens and the ocular is 25 by 50. So it sounds like we have the same setup. Yeah. Uh, what I what I just heard you saying is, well, let me back up. What we're talking about right here is a little bit more advanced in guys that are trying to find bucks 100 inches or better. Obviously, you've shot seven over 100. I would assume every year now you're you're trying to find that one buck. Obviously, you're trying to find as many bucks as you can, but you're looking for one buck to go hunt that's over 100 inches. Um, for the guys out there that just want to archery hunt deer and bucks, there may be a different strategy. Would you agree? Yes. I would say that's, you know, if somebody just wants to kill a buck, then go to where you see the most amount of deer because that's where you're going to have the most amount of opportunities. And that's, you know, when you start hunting, that's what you need is opportunities. If you're focusing on one animal, you might only have one stock, and then, you know, you might blow them out, and then you won't see them for a few days at least, I mean, maybe not ever. But um, you have to, um, like you said, beginners, you know, that are just starting the hunting process, they, you should go to where there's a lot of deer and have a lot of, be able to get a lot of stocks, and that will really help the learning curve. Okay, and would you say... Uh, I want to pick away at a few things you've talked about. One is you talk about you and a buddy um, finding a 126-inch deer, and you talk about some of the biggest coos deer that you've found have been in what you would think would be mule deer-type areas, either low or high. For the listeners out there that maybe aren't familiar with Arizona, there's kind of an interesting phenomenon in that mule deer kind of are like, you know, 2,500 feet and lower, and then they seem to be at like 6,500 feet and higher, but they don't seem to inhabit kind of that middle range. And I think a lot of it has to do with the habitat and the, and the terrain and the vegetation. Um, but I didn't want any confusion out there because mule deer, it's funny, they're, they're either down low or up high. And then coos deer typically are in the middle, but they do overlap all three, down low, in the middle, and up high. But what I hear you saying, Miguel, is that when you're looking for bigger coos deer, you tend to find them not in those middle areas. You tend to find them more in the fringe coos deer areas, either down low or up high. Is that correct? Correct. 
Okay, and do, my question would be, and I've asked others this on the podcast, um, do you feel like some of the bigger deer are in those quote-unquote fringe areas because most of the hunting pressure for coos deer happens in the middle and it allows some of those bucks low and high to slip through the cracks of the rifle hunters and grow up a little bit? I mean, do you think that's the main reason or do you actually think older bucks like that vegetation type? I, I think it has to do with you know, the amount of pressure, no doubt. In, in my mind, that's what I think is that they know that if they stay in that area, nobody's really going to mess with them. And they, they, they have a very good idea of where you can and can't hunt. They have a very, you know, I mean, it's, they're, they're smart animals. They know, they know how to stay alive, especially those big bucks. Yeah, my question is, do you really think that they intuitively like know to stay low or to stay high or do you think that they learn that hey I get bumped a lot less I see a lot less people low and I see a lot less people high I'm gonna stick here and then all of a sudden they get a few years on them and they've become a big buck do you think it's more of that than you know they're they're up in the 4,500 foot range and they're like hey we need to get out of here we got to go lower we got to go high I, I'm not so sure that they they have that ability to think like that, do you? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's along the lines of like, yeah, they get bumped, they see activity, you know, it's, it's like, you know, they know the difference between a predator and somebody just walking along because, I mean, it's, they spend a lot of time being able to, you know, trying to stay alive. Um, you know, I've seen deer where they're looking at you, it's a big buck, and he'll put his horns inside a tree and just look at you right from the bottom of that tree. And until you leave, he's not moving. And you try and get closer, and he takes off. And that's when you see that it's a big buck. And I've seen that happen more than once. I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, it's like, how is it that dogs know what you're telling them? It's because they've, you tell them so many times that they understand that that's what that means. And I think that yeah. kind of happens with deer. They get bumped so much, it's like, you know what? It means that I'm going to get killed, so I need to get out of here. And once they stop getting bumped, and once, you know, they start seeing that things are, are, are okay, then that's when they kind of settle in into that area, into that zone. Let's talk about the first buck um, you killed uh, over 100 inches. Um, talk a little bit about that hunt. Um, the thrill of getting a buck with your bow over a hundred inches. Well, um, that buck I had seen him. You know, I'd been seeing him for a couple of couple of weeks, and um, I had put a stock on him, and I ended up missing low on that deer. And man, I, I felt crushed, you know, because this was my chance at a really nice deer. And, and I ended up, you know, not being able to put him on the ground. And it took me about a week to find him again. So that next time, he was, uh, he was chasing does. And that's when I kind of de started developing, you know, one of the strategies that I use is that when I see that he's, that that buck is with a doe, if that doe is stationary, 
and he's kind of fighting other bucks, um, he's not going to, unless that doe takes off, he's not going anywhere. And he'll, he'll let a lot of stuff slide before he takes off on his own. And that's basically what ended up happening. You know, I passed him up. I saw him chasing a couple of small things around, you know, getting him off the doe. And I basically slid in to about, you know, 55 yards. And when he was coming back towards the doe, because the doe was kind of down in the bottom of this cut, so she couldn't see anything, and he was up on top. And basically, he was kind of walking back and kind of started, you know, raking a tree. And, you know, I ranged him, you know, kind of held my breath, let it out, drew back, and uh, let the arrow go. And, I, and he went down, you know, basically uh, within sight. And I just couldn't believe it, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where there's not a lot of people that, that have done it. I guess it's more... It's easier to see now with social media and stuff like that, but still, I was pretty happy, you know. I was ecstatic. For sure. I mean, that's an awesome feat. Any buck over 100 inches is an awesome feat, nonetheless getting them with a the bow. Um, is, would you say that that strategy that you just talked about where you witness a buck being preoccupied with a couple other bucks, chasing off other bucks, the doe's just feeding, she's, you know, tired of him chasing her around she's trying to get a little bit of peace and quiet she kind of is just feeding around stationary if you can keep your eye on that doe and slip in there is that one of your best tactics to like get in tight and then just wait not press too much but hope that you can you know close into that 50 yard range and and kind of just wait and see what happens he'll either come back to the doe and push her by you or i mean is that one of your main strategies Yes. Basically, any time that I do a spot and stock type of deal, and, and most of these bucks that I've killed are, if you look at the dates, they're within that, that you know, 19th, 20th through the 25th, 26th. They're all pretty much during that, those days. And that's because that's when they're kind of tending those doughs and trying to uh, make sure that no other bucks gets in there. And, yeah, that's one of my top strategies. And even, even when it's not during the actual hunt, uh, during the rut hunt, you know, I try and get within comfortable archery distance, and then I just sit and kind of kind of wait. I mean, it, you know, after doing this for such a long time, you have a really good idea when it is a good stock and when it's a 50-50 chance. And if it's a 50-50 chance, I'd rather not take it because of the wind and stuff like that. You know, if you know that it's, you know, early in the morning before the, the you know, the, the wind changes and stuff like that, I kind of hold off until afterwards. And then, you know, that you're going to sit there. If they sit there for, you know, four hours, you know, pretty soon they're going to get up and they're going to have to stretch. And, you know, that the sun kind of hits them and they're not going to be comfortable. And that's kind of, you know, in the other situation, that's kind of what I'm looking for in order to be able to, to put an arrow in them. You know, gotta let, you got to let the animal make the last move. So, in other words, you're, you're kind of passive in that you, you, you definitely don't stalk every buck you see, don't go after them every time you see them. Um, you kind of use time to, to, you know, use the high probability and ch high chance, uh, you know, try and strike at the highest probability, and if it's not over a 50% chance, 
then you, you hold off. And you do right. that because you don't want to blow them out because don't you feel like when you blow them out, then your chances of getting back on them you may, may take you three or four or five days to find the buck again. Exactly, yeah. I mean, especially those bigger bucks, they feel pressure, they're going to move. And then, you know, sometimes you'll find them, but you'll find them, you know, a mile or two in, a, in another area. And that's, that's what you try and avoid. You try and avoid educating them because if not, uh, that can... That can cost you that buck. Is there specific bucks that you can think of that you've actually sat on and watched over and over and over and not stalked them, and then finally he was in the right spot or, the, you know, the situation was right where you went? Is there any one of those seven bucks that you've killed that you would say, yeah, I watched them multiple days and didn't, didn't even go after them? Um, that first buck... I kind of watched them, and I I watched them for a few days. I think let's see. There's one with a big main beam. He was he's he ended up scoring like 109, and I watched him. I watched him for a long time. I watched him for even weeks at a time. You know, a week would go by and not put a stock on him just because he just wasn't right. Um, but yeah, that's I I do that a lot. If it's not right, why even go in there? Yeah. Is um, most of your strategy spot and stock, do you do any, you know, sitting in a ground blind at a water hole during the rut and, and waiting for them? Talk a little bit about no. that. No, all my strategies, all, everything that I do is pretty much spot and stock. The only time I've really used ground blind has been on an animal hunt. Man, that's – and I have killed – one deer at the, you know, kind of like when I first started bow hunting, I ended up killing one deer off of a water hole. But that's pretty much it. Sometimes I think that it's, I'd rather do the spot and stock thing because I know what I'm going after instead of, you know, you're sitting at the water hole and hoping something comes in. I Sure. Maybe I, I don't have the right patience for that, but uh, but I can look at a deer and, and if it's not right, I'll, I'll hold off. Okay, good stuff. Um, if if sitting water is not your strategy that you prefer to hunt, um, for those out there listening that that would like to sit water, can you give any advice um, as far as timing during that January season when you feel it would be, you know, better to sit water than than you know spot and stock? And I'm talking mainly people that are just trying to kill bucks and have success, um, any tips that you could give as far as, you know, early in the season, middle of the season, late in the season, you know, as far as sitting water, um, you know, any, any tips there you could give that, you know, obviously you don't do it, but you probably from as much monitoring deer that you've had, you probably have a pretty good sense of, of some ideas for people. Well, you know, the main thing is 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 uh, that midday time frame. You know, especially if they're running around. You know, sometimes they'll they'll go to water if if it's available. But you know, as as far as um, you know, I I think that's the main thing is to stay during that you know uh, nine o'clock time frame to about three o'clock. That'll really cover a good portion of when they come in. You know, I mean, if, if that whole thing of 
basically, I mean, if you're going to sit water, sit all day. And um, kind of, I guess the main thing is, you know, see how much activity is at that water hole. You know, look at tracks, set up a camera, things of that nature. That will give you the best information as far as that goes. But, um, you know, if during the first part of January, they're kind of, they're still not really too in tune with, you know, with uh, Chase and Doe. So they're probably still kind of in, in their regular patterns. And, uh, but like I said, I mean, water is needed, especially during those drought years. I mean, that's a very effective tactic. And, um, like I said, midday is is a really good time for me. Miguel, if you had to pick, um, you've, you've obviously enjoyed spotting stock. You obviously enjoy hunting in January, and you've, you've gotten really good at it. Um, if you had to pick a 10-day window, year in and year out, like these were the only 10 days that I would, you know, I'm the authority, and I can only give you 10 days to hunt, Miguel. What 10 days would that, would you say, Jay, I'm going to be in the field this day to this day? Probably the 19th, you know, 19th, 20th to the end of the month, you know, time frame, last part of the month. Really? So you, you would pick from about the 19th on. So you prefer the back end of the hunt as far as yep. rutting activity, bucks really aggressively chasing does. That's, um, from what you've witnessed, the 19th on is your best time. I would say so. I have killed one or two before that, um, but they weren't really running. And, you know, but the majority of, of my bucks have been during that time frame. Okay, so, but does does that mean that you aren't really hunting till then, or are you going out almost every day starting January 1st and hunting quite a bit but it's more like just watching and trying to find a big buck and then waiting till that buck is really really rutting does hard real intense rutting and that's when you've been able to capitalize on that correct exactly like i'll go you know during you know with with the work that i do i can have like an afternoon schedule and i'll be out in the mornings and i'll pretty much go out every morning and spend time looking at animals and and like I said sometimes if, if I see a situation that, that I think that I can make something happen I'll go after it but you know I'm not too worried about it I'll spend you know two three weeks just looking until I get the right buck in the right situation and then it's uh it's game on and it's it's worked out really well for me you know I just got to have faith that, that it, it will come you know that's awesome stuff. Let's take a quick break right here. I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider. And if you guys are listening and you're not a GoHunt Insider member, I highly encourage you to do so. In my opinion, it's the best Western hunting resource out there. You can take all the Western states and you can look up the draw odds and the harvest statistics. You can find hidden gem units and, you know, hunts that have slipped through the cracks and, you know, you can up your draw odds by studying these statistics a lot, and GoHunt does a great job of breaking it down, and they also have incredible uh, strategy articles uh, on each state. Uh, and with the Arizona deadline coming up uh, June 12th, I highly encourage you guys to 
uh, check out GoHunt.com Insider. Use the J. Scott promo code. If you use that promo code, you're going to get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card just by using the J. Scott promo code. Uh, and I appreciate you guys supporting the sponsors of this podcast. I also want to thank Kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. Uh, Jason Harrison and his crew over there, in my opinion, make the best ultralight hunting gear available on the market today. You can check them out on Instagram uh, and go to their website as well. That's KUIU.com. I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship. Uh, I also want to thank the Outdoorsmans.com, 1-800-291-8065. Uh, you can use the J. Scott promo code. Uh, that's J. Scott, all one word, J. Scott, J-A-Y-S-C-O-T-T, uh, at out Outdoorsmans.com, and you're going to get a 10% discount. You can also call them on the phone and give them my name. That will also give you the 10% discount. And then Phonescope.com. If you go on Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E.com, use the J. Scott 16, so all one word, J. Scott 16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. And I thank those sponsors, and I thank you guys for supporting them. I get messages from the sponsors uh, every week on how much support you give them, and I thank you guys for that. Uh, Miguel, I want to take a sidebar here just a second, and you mentioned uh, your work. You mentioned that you can kind of schedule around and be working in uh, the evenings or afternoons and have the mornings off. What do you do um, for, for employment? I'm from the law enforcement. Okay. I'm a Border Patrol agent, so. Okay. Okay, so Border Patrol agent, um, good stuff. So that allows you to be out. I mean, you're out all the time in that country, um, and you've talked about, you know, you, if you had to choose 10 days, you know, the 19th on, you've killed a bunch of bucks between that 19th and 26th. Um, do you see coos deer running all the way into the last days of January and even into February? Or if you if you absolutely had to pick one day, year in and year out that you would say the rut, if you're in the field that day, you probably will witness the most intense rut of the whole season. What day would that be? That's kind of a tough one because, you know, it kind of varies a little bit year to year, you know, but usually those, you know, kind of like that, you know, 23rd, 24th time frame, you know, right in there. I mean, it's, it varies. And it, I, don't exactly know why. I mean, sometimes, and then there's some years that there's a real strong rut, and then there's other years that it's that it's not so so strong. You know, it just seems like they chase a little bit, and then all of a sudden they're gone instead of that buck staying with that doe for maybe, you know, two or three days. All of a sudden they're there one day, and then the next they're gone. So it just kind of depends. You know, like uh, this last rut, it was kind of, it was kind of rough. I didn't see the buck that I killed until kind of like the 21st. And like I said, I, I didn't see anything really big until that. And I, I, I really don't know exactly what's been happening, but it seems like these past couple of years haven't, hasn't been as strong as other years. Do you notice um, 
in the areas that you hunt, do the bucks break up that bad, or is it really not a problem? Uh, no, they're not really too broken up. I mean, uh, the buck that I killed this year, you know, had maybe, you know, an inch or two broken off, but nothing really bad. Um, it's it's not it's not the norm to see busted up deer. So, you know, I guess, I guess um, that's never really been kind of an issue for me, seeing broken okay. deer. And you've shot, the biggest you've shot is a 116. Um, talk about some of the biggest bucks you've ever seen. Obviously, that you, if your biggest buck's 116, I know you've seen bucks that are bigger that you haven't gotten killed. Um, talk about some of the behavior of some of the biggest bucks you've seen on the hook and how they act. Are, do they act differently, or do they just rut with reckless abandon, and it's just been one of those things that you haven't been able to connect on? Um, some of the biggest bucks that I've seen have not been during the rut. It was during that August time frame. And, um, but, you know, it, it's whenever you do see those, those big bucks, they, okay, well, let me back up. There was there was a couple that we figured were in the one twenties, and yes, they kind of just they basically took over. Once that that doe was in heat, they were they were on it, and it just um, one buck. He just he he was on the doe. He was I, you know I thought that I had him, and then he kind of made me out and never saw him again. And that was one of the ones that that uh, even though. You know, I figured that I, I was be, I would be able to get on him. No, he he figured that he his his tail was more important than than the doe, and kind of took off. So it's not always a guaranteed tactic, but it kind of it kind of helps out. You know, the process a little bit. You know, that was also a little bit earlier. You know, sometimes you feel like one of the things. It's like every year you, you kind of go into this mentality. It's like, well, you know, I think I know what I'm doing and this, that, and the other. And then <laughs> you get humbled quick, kinda, don't you? <laughs> yeah. You, you, you know, you get, you get slapped in the face and you say, Hey, still a rookie, man. Get, you know, get yeah. back to the basics. Got to, yeah. you got to go through the motions and you got to know what you're doing. And it happens every year. So sometimes it's, sometimes I get caught with that. So it's, it's never that, that I know exactly what's going on. Sometimes I get slapped with a slice of humble pie, too. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, would you agree that we, by nature, as humans, we kind of get fancy in that, you know, you're like, well, I've killed seven over 100. I know what I'm doing. And that's all great, and it's great to have confidence. But, um, it, you know, it, it seems like with me, with any animals that I'm hunting, you know, it seems like the more I do it, the less I know. And it's kind of funny. You would think it's the opposite, but it's it's almost that it's so complex that you know you think you've got them, you think you've got it figured out. You've actually you're, you're further away from figuring them out than you thought you were. Um, but that's that's the fun and the joy of it for me. Um, let's talk a little bit about stocking as far as equipment. Um, what do you wear on your feet, if anything, to quiet your noise? Um, usually I try and take my shoes off 
if I'm going to get in really close, I mean, I can get, I could get within bow range without taking it off. And on most times, that's kind of where I stay. So I really try not to push the issue too much of getting in close. I think that a lot of people make the mistake of trying to get within that, you know, 40 yards, 20 yards, you know, trying to get in as close as possible. And I think it has to do with, you know, what you want to get out of the hunt. Now, if you, you know, you want to kill a deer at the closest range possible, you know, hey, if that's what you want to do, that's great. But for me, I want to try and put the animal on the ground. So one thing that I've noticed is that it seems like this comes like a certain, there's a certain area around the animal that they can just, you know, they're more in tune, they're more keen. It's like it doesn't even have anything to do with the wind. You know, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but they, they really get jumpy. So I kind of like to stay outside that. And, you know, I mean, I, and I try and rely on my, on my, uh, my shooting setup to kind of bridge the gap, you know. So I try not to, to get too close because I've seen some of my worst shots have been in that, you know, 30 to 40 yard um, range. So I try and kind of stay a little bit further back and let the animal be a little bit more relaxed. And it gives me time to go through my process, you know, of going through the shot without having to rush and everything else, you know. It gives you time to yeah. breathe, relax, you know, get your wits about you, you know, range the animal. And, uh, you know, you kind of have an idea of where he's going to come out. But, you know, the main thing is, is you got to let the animal make the last move. If you try and get into position to try and, you know, shoot him in his bed or something like that, you know, they're, they're probably going to catch your movement. I mean, if you could shoot them in the back, you know, hey, that's up to the individual. But for me, it seems like they catch movement really well. So I want to let them be moving so that way they don't catch my movement. Yeah. Uh, how much does being successful at archery coos deer hunting, how much of it is being a really good shot? I assume most good coos deer hunters, archery coos deer hunters I know, are very good shots with your bow. Um, talk a little bit about that. Do you feel like you're a very good shot or just a you know, nice, good average shooter? I mean, what, what's your skill set with archery? I think I do pretty well. Um, there's a lot of time that I spend on my archery equipment, a lot of time that I spend on my arrows. There's a lot. I haven't had anybody touch my bow in, in a long, long time. I do all my own tuning. I do all my own arrows. I go through, nitpick everything. I mean, most of my arrows weigh within a grain. Um, it's, it's, the, the thing is, is that whenever I take a shot, I know in my head, it's like, okay, this deer is screwed. And when you say... <laughs> so, I mean, when you, you, when you pull the trigger, you, you know pretty much you're going to kill that deer. I don't have a doubt in my mind that I'm, that I'm not, that I'm going to... There's 100% uh, shot. It's a 100% chance that I'm going to kill him if, I, if I'm going to release an arrow. That is my thought. Nice. Good. If if you're uh, kind of like thinking about it, it's like oh well, you know that's you know there's a lot of wind. It's like then you know what, just hold off. 
talk about your specific setup, uh, your green arrows, broadheads, you know, length of arrow. Talk about, you know, some of the specifics, draw weight, draw length. Talk about that um, as it relates to coots deer hunting. Well, I shoot the same setup for everything. If I go hunt antelope, if I go hunt elk, if I go hunt coos deer, if I go hunt javelina, it's all the same thing. And I'm a firm believer that if you shoot the same arrow setup at the same speed all the time, that just makes for less complications in your, in your head later on. Um, I shoot a, right now I'm shooting a Hoyt Carbon Defiant 34. It's uh, set up at 80 pounds, 29-inch drawlings. I shoot a 493 grain arrow. It's uh, the gold tip Pierce Platinums. And I also put like a, a 20 grain weight in the back. I shoot a 125 grain Grim Reaper broadhead. Uh, I shoot a four fletch. My setup is set up for, for longer range shooting. It's, it's uh, I have a, like a 15 inch stabilizer on the front. I got a 10 inch stabilizer to the back. I've got, I have it weighted to where as soon as I draw back, I can close my eyes, draw my bow back, and the bubble level will be perfect. I mean, I spend a lot of time working on my equipment, and um, I think it's, it's, it's really important to be able to, when you have a shot, be able to make it count, you know, because it doesn't do any good to, to get within range and everything else if you can't put it together, you know. It's, it's, it's one of the main staples of my, of my archery game, of my, of my bow hunting, is to be able to make the shot. So. For sure. I want to, I want to ask you a couple questions about uh, the units down there and talking in generalities. Um, you mentioned 35A, 35B, and the 36A, B, and C. Out of those five, which do you feel is the highest density and most opportunity for hunter, hunt, uh, coos deer hunters, and which unit would be the lowest density and probably the hardest unit for archery hunters to hunt? Another thing is, is that um, it just kind of depends. You know, usually in the 35, uh, 35A and B, it's kind of thicker. And um, there's less areas to, that I kind of go glass in those areas. But, um, you know, it just kind of depends on, on what the person wants, you know. I mean, if you're going to be archery hunting and you're going to, you know, the 36s, they're, they're a little bit more open, got a lot, of, you know, more opportunity to glass and stuff like that, especially for, for somebody that's beginning, you know, it lets you kind of practice your glassing skills and everything else. In the 35s, you know, it seems like it's a little bit higher, a little bit thicker, and a uh, little less conducive to glassing. But um, I don't really, I think there's a lot of deer wherever you go. It's just a question of finding them. And, you know, if there's more dense uh, vegetation, it might seem like it's, like there's less animals when, in fact, there could be quite a bit. So, okay. I don't know if that what kind of about, answers your question. Yeah. What about mule deer um, in those five units, or even let's throw 34A in there as well, six units for mule deer. 
what unit out of those would you say would be you know the best for mule deer and which unit would probably be the worst for mule deer well probably 35b would be the worst for mule deer but that's a smaller unit you know and it's connected to some you know to other units that aren't too bad um i found <laughs> thing is it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to say that anyone is a bad unit. I mean, I've seen good bucks, really good bucks in in 34A, 35A. I've seen them in, in all of those units. It just kind of depends yeah. on the year. So, so in, in your defense a little bit, those units are, even the smaller ones are big, big units. So it's kind yeah. of hard for you to say one's worse or one's better because you've spent so much time down there, you've seen big deer and lots of deer in, in every unit, and it kind of, would you agree it kind of ebbs and flows year after year? Yes. One unit makes, oh, yeah. you know, tons of deer, and then maybe a couple of years later, another unit's on fire with a lot of deer. Um, but exactly. Would you agree that that whole southern Arizona region for coos deer and mule deer, I mean, it's, for, it's a target-rich environment? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you put in your time, you're going to see animals. There's no doubt about it. No doubt. And then about I notice, I notice on your Instagram, um, I notice on your Instagram, and for anybody out there listening, go to Big Mo B I G M O one o one. That's Miguel's uh, Instagram handle, Big Mo one o one. I notice you're pretty hard on the javelina as well. <laughs> Uh, talk about your thoughts of archery javelina uh, from an animal or from a standpoint of an archer um, is there a better animal out there that you can hone your skills with than a javelina you know that's the one reason why I, I still keep on hunting them is because it's a good primer for the for for the deer hunt you know it's like kind of kind of gets the cobwebs out and, you know, kind of puts an animal on the ground, you know, a little bit of, little bit of, uh, of adrenaline. And uh, especially if you get to call them in, it's, it's really neat. You know, I mean, they don't see very well. There's, they can smell very well. But so as long as the wind is in your face, you're going to get on them. And, you know, you can fool their hearing, you know, a little bit, but uh, you can get away with a lot with them. And it's, especially good to, uh, you know, for the beginner, you know, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice if you don't go after the javelina because it's a, it's a pretty good primer for, for uh, everything else. And the nice thing about it is you can, you know, if, if there's out-of-staters out there listening and you want to come down and escape some of the cold weather or whatever where you live in the Midwest or back east or, or where north, up in the northwest, get out of the rain, um, you can put in ahead of time for a javelina tag in the month of January um, and have an archery javelina tag in your pocket and then come down and hunt over-the-counter deer, and you can hunt them both at the same time. So not to mention, uh, you know, it's just a great time to be in southern Arizona. Um, you know, the weather's, you know, cold in the morning but usually beautiful during the day and can range from, you know, Miguel 55 to, you know, 75 degrees usually in most Januarys, right? And, yeah, you know, I mean, that's exactly it. You know, it's, sometimes it's a little bit colder than others, but, uh, you know, I, I know one guy came down from Montana, 
and he he was ecstatic with this with with our cold weather, which was about you know fifty five. Yeah. Um in in closing here, uh some kind of final thoughts. Um do you set out each year, now that you've killed seven over a hundred, do you set out each year to like I'm gonna kill a bigger buck this year, that's what I wanna do, or is it mainly you're hunting, you know, solid bucks over a hundred inches and if you find a good solid buck over a hundred you're gonna hunt that deer? Or have you graduated where you're looking for those, you know, upper upper age, um, upper echelon bucks that you know you're like, I want to kill a, you know, 120 plus, or or is well, it just I want to hunt a solid buck? Well, the thing is, is that you know sometimes, uh, you know, you can't hunt what isn't there. So, you know, I mean, I'd love to kill a you know a 120 or bigger. I have 13 bonus point. Well, I will have 13. I have 12 this year. I already killed a deer, so I'm going to get a bonus point. So, you know, if next year I don't kill something in January, I'm going to I'm gonna put in for the strip, you know, for the archery hunt. With that being said, it's kind of, you know, the last, let's see, the last four bucks have been like 109 to the 116. One was a 111. Another was a 112, 116, and a 109. So if I see something that's 110 or bigger, it's kind of hard to pass that up with a bow. Yeah, you know I mean? for sure. So, so it's, it's just kind of like one of those things where, you know, I, I have, a, I have, a, you know, I have a, an all right chance of maybe drawing a strip tag if, if I don't. So I'm kind of like, you know, I, that kind of gives me more hope, you know, to kind of wait on a bigger buck. And so it's, I don't know, it's just kind of how I feel at the moment. But the main thing is just being out there, you know. I mean, if I kill the first deer that, that pops out, then my hunt's over. So I really like being out there, looking at animals. Um, you know, you get to see, it's not just about, for, for me, you know, I, I really enjoy looking at all the animals, at what they do, just seeing different animals, whether it be like a kudamundi seen a bobcat or, you know, things of that nature. It, it's just, it, it has a lot to do with the overall experience. And killing a bigger buck is not that easy, so that means that i got to stay out there longer, you know. So that's, yeah. it just depends on how I feel at the moment. But right now that's kind of where I'm shifting towards, you know, if something that's 110 or bigger that I think is 110 or bigger pops out, you know, I'm going to have a hard time not send, trying to send an arrow at him. You're right down as well. It's off the subject, but you're right down there in Gould's Turkey Country, and um, in the profession you're in, you're probably seeing Gould's Turkey all the time. Uh, talk a little bit about the success that those turkeys have had um, since you know since you've been a kid, when you probably didn't see any, to now where I'm in most of those units, um, you know those 35A, 35B, 34A. Um, you know, there's just all kinds of turkeys. Do you see quite a few of them? Uh, I do see quite a few, especially, you know, I, I ended up having a tag a while back, and uh, and what ended up happening was that I ended up getting one. So, um, you know, it was, 
you do see quite a few more. You've seen them. I've seen them a lot further in, closer to town. It's like sometimes we'll we'll be uh, cutting a road, you know, looking for sign or whatever, and you'll see the turkey tracks coming down, you know, and uh, yeah. you'll see it's they're not like I've hunted Miriams and I've killed the Miriams turkey, and those are a lot harder than the Goulds, but uh, they sure are a lot of fun. And yeah, I ended up, like I said, I killed one a while back. Uh, I think it was like 2010, and I've been trying to get a tag again ever since, and interface isn't that great to me. So. <laughs> well, Miguel, it's been awesome talking to you about coos deer and hearing your passion for bull hunting, and um, I'll have to have you on again, and I just appreciate you spending your time, and congratulations on the success that you've had with, with uh, all your hunting and, and the different animals you've been able to harvest, and again, um, I'll link it up in the show notes, but I encourage the listeners to follow Miguel at Big Mo, that's B-I-G-M-O-101 on Instagram. And uh, just, um, Miguel, thanks for coming on. I want to give you a chance if you have any final concluding thoughts um, to let her rip or if you've got any, anything else to say, um, feel free to do so and just appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me on. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, people should know is get the best glass you can afford. That's going to give you the most amount of opportunity. You know, if you buy a, a used bow, you know, or, or, you know, stuff like that, glass is number one. Because if you can't see them, you can't, can't get on them. And Great. basically Great that's, that's my, my, my number one tip to whoever asks me. But uh, I thank you very much yeah. for your time and, and, uh, Thank you for having me on. Yeah, buddy. Sounds good. Well, until I talk to you next time, God bless. And uh, just thank you so much and uh, enjoy watching your success. And I'll be looking forward again uh, come this January. So um, best of luck to you. Okay, buddy? Thank you, Jay. All right. Take care.